I want to invite you, if you will, to take your copies of Scripture and uh, find Ezra chapter 7. Uh, we're going to be continuing there from chapter 7 and chapter 8 from last week. Uh, I want to echo um, my appreciation for our sister churches. Uh, we do earnestly pray for them, and I hope you do, and that is not an exercise that we take lightly when we're interceding on behalf of sister churches. Uh, our prayer is always for them, um, not, within the, not within the scope of uh, church growth thinking, but uh, in the scope of their faithfulness to the gospel. You know, we can, uh, we can reach a lot of people with a lot of different things, um, but that which we reach them with, we keep them with. And they are kept only in as much as they understand and know the gospel and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in the course of their lives. And it is not for us as churches, and I mentioned this, and this is true of us and all of our other churches, it is not uh, faithfulness to the gospel uh, if we are not diligently preaching and teaching and sharing the gospel. And I... I pray for our pastors and, uh, and our churches regarding those things. Last week, uh, we began looking at Ezra 7 and 8. Um, we know that Ezra is the author of the book that we're studying. It is also believed that he wrote uh, the book of Nehemiah as well. Uh, but if you'll recall from last week, he is a Jewish priest and scribe. Uh, he's also a Persian emissary. In other words, he is being sent by uh, the Persian king back to Jerusalem. And it was last week when we got to chapter 7 that we finally encountered Ezra. Prior to that, we had uh, read his history from 80 years before uh, when we began in Ezra chapter 1. He was recalling back 80 years uh, and the 42,000 people uh, that were led by Zerubbabel and Joshua uh, as they were returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Remember, the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. And uh, not only was the temple destroyed, the walls of the city were destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Um, they took away all the treasury of the temple, everything that was of a value, uh, every gold, every piece of silver, every precious metal, um, even the Ark of the Covenant and all that was there was taken away and were carried into Babylon. And then they also displaced uh, most of the rest of the Jews who were living in that area, the ones that had not been killed and the ones that had not fled in some other way. They displaced them uh, throughout other regions of Babylon and uh, the regions of that empire. The prophet Jeremiah had communicated that after a period of 70 years, and this was a word of hope coming from God, that after 70 years in exile, that the Lord would bring them back to their land and the temple would be rebuilt. I was thinking about that this week, that the return of the exiles and their descendants was really a statement of the faithfulness of God to his covenant people. Think about that, that God said that he was going to bring them back, and he does. It was a demonstration of his grace toward them and, and the love that he had for them. I want you to remember uh, that that is true of us, that God is faithful to his covenant people. We have been singing of that. We've been hearing of that uh, even this morning, and we will continue to see that, see that throughout the Scripture. Uh, but remember that he was gracious to them because remember the reason for their exile. Remember the reason for the destruction of the temple. Uh, Ezra had stated it in chapter 5 and verse 6. He says, but because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, in other words, had sinned against him, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed the house and carried away the people uh, to Babylon. So slightly, slightly over 50 years after the temple was destroyed, 
the Lord stirred the heart of the Persian king at that time, Cyrus, and he sent a group of the Babylon, uh, sent a group of the exiles back from Babylon and sent them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And we have studied already and recognized that it was about 25 years after their return that the temple was completed. So it's approximately about 55 years later that we begin reading. Uh, what takes place and what occurs in chapter 7 and 8 of Ezra. And last week we said that there were six times in these two chapters that Ezra referenced the good hand of God or the hand of God upon the people. We read the entire text last week. Uh, I won't do it this week uh, for the sake of time, but we are going to look at the passages where he says that and look at the circumstances around it. Because I mentioned last week that understanding this phrase, he gives this to us six times in a period of what covers no more than five months of his life. Six times in five months of his life, when he's given the historical account of what's taking place and the work of God, he continues to say over and over again, the hand of God was on me. The good hand of God was on us. Uh, we looked at that last week and we said that Ezra's ultimate explanation regarding his life, uh, his calling, his gifts, his task, uh, and the provisions that God made for all of them ultimately was because the hand of God was on him and on them. And our aim last week was to dig into this, and that's our aim this morning. We want to hear about the good hand of God. I want to hear about the good hand of God. Uh, we need to discover its meaning. Uh, and we also uh, need to find out how is God's good hand on us? To ask and answer the question, how is God's good hand on you? How can God's good hand be on you? Is God's good hand on you? Are there conditions that are related to God's good hand being on someone? We've seen how the good hand of God was upon Ezra. We saw last week that the good hand of God was on Ezra in his heritage and in his calling. And God's good hand has been on you. It has. Uh, whatever means you have come into the world, whoever your family is, Whatever status they were in, whatever the status they were not, whatever it is that has come about in the course of your life, and you're here today, God has sustained you, but God's good hand was on you. Uh, in the mom and dad he gave you, in the mom and dad that's raised you, the people that have come into your life to encourage you and to help you, God's good hand has been on you. God has ordained everything that has come about in your life. Hear that. God's good hand has ordained everything that has come about in your life. We said that we are talking about the providence of God ultimately, and we tried to define that last week. We were reminded that God's providence can be sweet and it can also be bitter, but it's always good. Remember that. It's bitter, sweet, but always good because God is sovereign he, by his authority and power, can do anything. And his providence takes into account his nature because he directs all things by the counsel of his wisdom and according to his good plans and purposes. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he works all things according to the counsel of his will and to the praise of his glory. And when Paul was writing in that statement, when he is saying all things, he is talking about all things and how all of that culminates in the work of Christ. And when Ezra is looking at the hand of God upon him, though he does not yet know Christ, because he has not seen him, he knows God, he knows Yahweh, and he is trusting in him. I want us to look this morning, beginning in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 7, the good hand of God is on those who love His Word. We saw last week that uh, back in verses 6 and 7, uh, this Ezra that went up from Babylon, he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. We talked about how he was a lawyer. Uh, he understood the law of God. He knew how to teach it. He knew how to keep it. Uh, and he was being sent back for that purpose. Um, and that uh, and, and, and given uh, the king... It was, uh, 
This Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses uh, that the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And in verses 9 and 10 uh, we read, For the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of God was on him. Why? Verse 10 answers that. For Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules uh, in Israel. There is a stipulation there. The good hand of God was upon him because he had a love for God's Word. He longed for God's Word. There are three things that it says there. He studied the law of the Lord. He studied it not just to know it, but to do it and to teach His statutes and rules in Israel. So He studied the law of the Lord, He studied it to do it, and He studied it with the intention of teaching others. I want you to think about that in the context of our understanding of God's Word and, and what drives us to study God's Word. What drives you to study God's Word? One, you'd have to ask and answer the question, am I driven to study God's Word? Not should I, but am I driven in such a way that I am going to study God's Word? Am I going to study it to do it? And does the end result of that ultimately come to be fleshed out and to teach it and to share it with others? Ezra set his heart on these things. He set his heart on these things. For Ezra had set his heart to study the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes. The psalmist writes, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. No one can study for you. I was thinking about that this week. No one can study for you. God will not read and study the Bible for you. He has given you his word that you may know him and know His will. I'm reminded back from our study in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into your salvation. So for those of us here today that have trusted Christ and we know that we have been saved, we've been sanctified and set apart, we've been justified, God is at work in us, He is at work in us through His Word, and that is how we grow up into our salvation. So if we're here today and we have trusted Christ and we have no desire to study God's Word, then just know that you will not grow in your salvation. It is, it is paramount for us as a, in, as, a, as a group of believers to gather and study God's Word as we are today. But we also have to have a heart for God and have to set our hearts to long for God's Word. The desire of his life, Ezra's life, was to know the Word of God. He had set his heart to study the Scriptures. And he would also set his heart to do it. Ezra had set his heart to do it. He did not want merely to learn the Bible. He wanted to live it. He studied the Word in order to put it into practice. I was thinking about him and what he has done. He, he made it his goal to love the Lord his God with all of his heart. When we say that we long to love the Lord of God, the, the, the Word of God, and long to love God with all of our hearts, if we do, we are going to study His Word. He kept the commandments. He sought to follow the law of God. He searched the scriptures to know what God expected of him. He put the scriptures into practice. And this isn't a works-based righteousness of his. He's just seeing the value of God's word as we should see the value of God's word. It's not enough to learn just about things in scripture. We have to put it into practice. We were just teaching just a moment ago as we were working through our confession how the Lord had taught his disciples to pray. It's not enough to learn about prayer. We must pray. Pray. We must pray. It's not enough to learn about faith. We must exercise that faith. We must apply ourselves to the Word and then apply the Word to ourselves. The psalmist writing in Psalm 40 and verse 8, he said, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. But notice that it didn't stop there. Ezra had a heart to teach it. 
He wanted to teach it. And he was specific about where he wanted to teach it. He had never been to Jerusalem. He had never been back to Israel. But he wanted to go back to Jerusalem. And he wanted to teach the people that he did not, many of them he did not know. But he wanted to go back and to teach them. There's something missional about that statement in desiring that I want to study God's Word. I want to be equipped to teach God's Word so that others can know about Him. So that others can hear of the good news of the Gospel. A believer is longing for those things to come out of him or her so that others can come to know uh, the, 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 the beauty of King Jesus. The beauty of the Lord God. Now, it wasn't just enough for him to study it and to do it. Ezra had set his heart to teach others. He wanted to go up from Babylon. He wanted to go to Jerusalem. And he wanted to go there to teach God's Word. Ezra was willing to live in Babylon if that was God's will. But he had set his heart on teaching God's Word in Israel. I want to ask you, has God laid on your heart to teach God's Word, to teach His Word, and to share the Gospel somewhere else? Has He laid that on your heart? I hope He is. I hope He has. We've said all along that if, 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 we, can just, if we can just send people out to other, to other parts of the world, to other parts of this country, if we can send people out who know the gospel, love the gospel, and long to teach it, we will have accomplished the very thing that God has called us to accomplish. Where do you want to share God's word? I hope some of you are wanting to go share God's word in another country. Somewhere where the gospel is not proclaimed. To go share the gospel somewhere in some remote place in some other part of this world so that people can hear the gospel. We see that Ezra was teaching the gospel whenever he got back. We saw that he taught the gospel. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 8, next book over, and look at verses 1 through 8. And we'll hear about how when Ezra arrived, he began to teach God's word. Nehemiah chapter 8, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And as the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law, and Ezra the scribe stood on the wooden platform that they had made for that purpose, and beside him stood uh, Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, uh, Maiah on his right hand, and Padiah, and Mishael, and Malachi, and Hashem, and Hashbanana. Uh, Zechariah, Meshullam on his left, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen. And lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And in verse 8, they read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense of it, meaning that they taught it, they explained it, so that the people understood the reading. And the resulting was the worship of God. That's the reason Ezra wanted to go back, because he served a great God whose hand was on him, leading him to go back to teach God's Word. We can't teach it if we don't know it, and we won't know it if we don't study it. The good hand of God is on those who love His Word. The good hand of God is on those who love His Word. But also look that the good hand of God is a source of courage for all who trust Him. Look, if you will, in verse 27 of chapter 7. This comes after Artaxerxes has sent this letter and given him this letter and given him the provisions that he needs to go back. This is what Ezra prays. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, 
to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. We'll see how that courage was displayed in Ezra's life as we continue uh, to look into the text. But here in this text, it is displayed as he begins to gather other leading men to join him in the work that he uh, was setting out to accomplish. Trusting in the Lord is, in fact, trusting in Him to assemble men and women around you to help you to accomplish the things that He has for you to do. And notice that Ezra's reaching out did not mean that he was not going to invest in them. He wasn't looking at them as a utility. He was committed to teaching God's Word and was looking for men and women who would gather around him to help him accomplish this. I was thinking about the courage that uh, is being displayed here in trusting in God. And I was reminded of what Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 31 tells Joshua. I want you to hear what he says. So Moses continued to speak these words to all of Israel. And he said to them, I'm 120 years old today. I'm no longer able to go out and to come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over to this Jordan. The Lord your God Himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over as at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as He did to Sihon and Og and the kings of the Amorites and to their land when He destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. And then Moses says this, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you and he will not forsake you. Take courage. Take courage. Ezra took courage in the Lord and trusted in him. Moses is encouraging Joshua and the people that are getting ready to go into the promised land. He is, in, he is telling them, take courage and be strong and move forward and don't move forward in fear. And Ezra was not moving forward in fear, but he was moving forward in courage. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn over to Psalm chapter 27. I was drawn to that this morning, even as I was thinking through uh, today, and we've read it before, but listen to the words of the 27th Psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? And the point is, is to take courage. I won't read all of it, but I want you to turn to verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Ezra had turned his attention to God's Word. He had studied it. He knew what it said. He knew what God could do and he could do anything. And he knew what God was calling him to do. And because of this... He had the good hand of God on him, and he understood that. Therefore, he took courage. Paul was writing to church at Corinth in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, in verses 6 through 10. In fact, I'll just, just turn over there for just a minute. Um, I, want, I want you to see this in how we as believers in Christ are able to take courage in everything, even to death. And this was exactly what Ezra was pointing them to. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 6. So we are always of good courage, Paul writes. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. 
They are filled with courage, seeking to please God in life or in death. And then Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. That's where we take courage. Because the love of Christ controls us. Now look in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. See, our courage leads us to be ambassadors for Christ. But it rests in the atoning work of Christ. We take courage in this life as believers. We face life, we face death, we face hardships, we face struggles because of who Christ is. I just ask you today, do you have courage for life and death in God's good hand through Christ? Do you have courage today for life and death because of God's good hand on you through Christ? Back in Ezra, we looked at not only do those who, um, that we find that we take courage uh, as the good hand of God is upon us, but if you'll look over in chapter 8, the good hand of God is seen on those who remain faithful to God's plan. The good hand of God is seen on those who remain faithful to God's plan. Look, if you will, in Verse 18 of chapter 8, And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mahalai, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah and his sons and kinsmen, 18, also uh, um, Hashabiah, and with him uh, Jeshiah, and the sons of Meriah and his kinsmen and their sons, beside 220 servants from David and his officials set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. Now what brought all of that about? Well, if you'll look in verse 15, before Ezra sets out, he said, I gathered them to the river that runs to Hava, and there we camped for three days. I was looking at this. Notice that Ezra has everyone gathered at the river that runs to Ahava. He meets there at least initially, it seems, to take inventory on who's going. So the word has gone out. He has invited some to come. He's probably invited many to come. But we see that he gathers with them there before they set out. And he takes note of who is there. And what's interesting is, is that he finds in his inventory that there is no one from the tribe of Levi. There are no Levites there. There are some priests who are, have to be from the tribe of Levi. But remember, the priests came from Aaron, not just from Levites in general. Aaron himself was a Levite. Moses was a Levite. Aaron was priest, and, and therein is where uh, God established their Aaronic priesthood. But there were no Levites there. And you say, well, well, what's the big deal? They had some from the family. What was the big deal? Is God had set apart a certain sect of the Levites to do certain things in the temple. All the way back, whenever Israel was in the wilderness... 
when they got ready to move, it was the Levites who gathered and took all of the stuff down. They packed it up and they were the ones who toted it and carried it to wherever their next location was. They set it up. They made preparations for all of the service and it was the priest who actually carried out the intermediary work between God and Israel. Ezra's getting ready to go back. And he's got everything except the Levites. And he doesn't go on. Ezra is not willing to deviate from God's plan. So what does he do? Uh, he sends out a group of man, men to go to where Levites lived and to ask them to come. They had probably already received word. Uh, they just decided that they didn't want to go back. But Ezra was not willing to deviate from God's plan, but he sends men to go and to commission the Levites to come. And those that we read there in verse 18 uh, and 19 uh, are those that responded this time on the second call. I was thinking about that. Uh, we oftentimes, we ask for volunteers to do things. Uh, when we don't get volunteers, what happens? You get a personal contact from somebody to ask, will you please do this? In other words, there is a second offering being made here. Uh, that's what he does. And he doesn't want to deviate from that plan. And I was thinking about this as we were looking at, as I was studying the text, there are churches today who have departed from the prescriptions that God has given us in the scriptures regarding biblical authority. Primarily in the ordination of leaders that are prohibited in scripture. And even what constitutes the gospel is the good hand of God on them. Well, if the good hand of God is contingent upon us staying according to God's plan, no, it's not. And we recognize here when we see that Ezra is not willing to deviate from God's plan, he recognizes that God's good hand is upon him and he sends him the people that are necessary to carry out the plan that he knows that God has prescribed for him. We also see that the good hand of God is on those who strive to walk by faith alone. Look, if you will, there in verse 21. It said, Then I proclaimed the fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good and all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this and he listened to our entreaty. He heard our request. It's important for us to notice that there are two acts here on the part of Ezra that demonstrates his faith. First, he doesn't request a military escort, even knowing that it will take him four months. He has a thousand miles to travel. The, the end number of this group that was with him was somewhere between seven and 10,000. Take him four months across the wilderness to get back to Jerusalem. And he doesn't request a military escort, even knowing that that four-month trip is going to be dangerous, even knowing that their lives are going to be at risk, that what they're carrying back with all the gold and all the silver and all the money and all the materials and stuff that they're taking back, he knows that they are going to be prey for those who would come and steal it. But he had already told the king, the hand of God is for good on all who seek Him. And the power of His wrath is against all who forsake Him. The second thing that we notice that happens here with Ezra is that he calls for a prayer and fast. He's there at the river and he is not going to ask for these things because he has already said that God will supply them. So what does he do? He prays and he fasts. 
How does divine guidance work? You think about it, when you are in a situation where you don't know what to do, what do you do? How do you go about discovering God's will when you're not sure what God's will is? Well, we can conclude regarding divine guidance that God first speaks to us through His Word. We already know that Ezra was a great student of the law. He understood what God's Word had to say about who God was, what He was about, what He could do, what He wanted, what was prescribed, what was not prescribed. He already knew those things because he had studied God's Word and was continuing to study God's Word. But there are just some times that God's Word doesn't always give an absolute answer regarding all things. Even here we recognize that we have two young men. We have Ezra and we have Nehemiah. They approached the same thing, same set of circumstances. And one did one thing and one did another. Turn over to Nehemiah chapter 8 just a minute and you'll see what I'm talking about. I'm sorry. Nehemiah chapter 2. Look at verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, and remember that Nehemiah was a cupbearer, meaning that uh, he tested the drink before the king drank it to ensure that if it had been poisoned and the cupbearer died, the king would know, I probably don't need to drink out of that cup. That's what he was. He wasn't just a servant. Uh, he was someone to test the drink. He said, so I took the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. In other words, he's saying, I, I, wasn't, I haven't been sad before in his presence. So he's, he's never seen this side of me. But the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Notice the temple's been rebuilt. But the walls of the city have not been restored, and things are unsettled in Jerusalem. That's what he's pointing to. And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you should send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen's sitting right beside him. How long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of God was upon me. And we hear that again. Good hand of God was upon me. Nehemiah recognized that as well. Look on in verse 9. And then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Now, there's no, there, there's no statement there that Nehemiah has requested it. But he was given a military, uh, military escort to Judah. Ezra recognized that he needed a military escort so to speak, because of the danger, but he wouldn't ask for it. Now think about that for just a minute. Two young men, both of them faithful. Both are seeking to be faithful to God. Both pray. Neither are told specifically what to ask for. Both could have received military escort. One does, the other doesn't. One acknowledges that God's good hand is on him and goes with the escort. In other words, Nehemiah didn't put up and said, no, time out. 
I, I, I don't want that. The good hand of God is on me. He doesn't say anything. He takes the military escort. He doesn't reject it. And Ezra knows the dangers, yet doesn't ask for one for fear of being seen is not trusting in the Lord. Same set of circumstances. Are both faithful. J.I. Packer wrote this about God's guidance. Uh, many of you know I, I loved him, and uh, his knowing God just did more for me, I think, in my spiritual maturation at a stage in my life than anything uh, in God's Word. He says, God's guidance is more like marriage guidance, child guidance, or career guidance received from counselors than it is being talked down by an airport controller as one flies blind through the clouds. Seeking God's guidance is not like practicing divination, consulting oracles, astrologers, or clairvoyance for information about the future. Rather, this quest is comparable with just every day thinking through of alternative options in given situations to determine the best course open to us. The inward experience of being divinely guided is not ordinarily seeing signs and hearing voices, but rather of being able to work out the best thing to do based on what we know about God and based on where we are in praying. There is always a setting for faith to be demonstrated. Think about that. This past week, there's always the setting for determining, uh, I, I've got to, I want to be faithful, what does that look like? There are times that even when the setting is similar, and a faithful response in one way will look different uh, than a similar set of circumstances. Both can be faithful. So how can we know how to respond in faith? That's the question for us. How do we work through these things in life? Where we live, where we work, who we marry, where we go to school. Whether we change jobs or not. How do we come to know that? Well, we've already been given at least three things to draw from. And I just want us to rehearse those again. One is to always be studying God's Word. There is no replacement for studying God's Word and digging deep into His truth. It is a supernatural thing when God is directing and encouraging our hearts and minds through His Word. So study God's Word. It's more than this, but it is no less than a roadmap for life that can always be trusted. His Word instructs us on how to think, how to feel, and how to act. The second thing is, is we just rest and rely on our relationship to Him and with Him. Isn't that what Ezra's doing? Isn't that what Ezra's doing? I was reminded this week whenever our Connect group met, uh, we looked at a text that we've been working through uh, devotionally from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, and Paul just, all he does, he just begins by talking about who he is in God. That God knows him, God owns him, God has called him, he has called him by his will, he has told him that he is, he is entrusted with him apostleship, uh, he, all of those things, and then everything else, then Paul turns back to the church at Corinth and says, and these things are true of you, so this means this. We just rest and rely on our relationship to him and with him, recognizing that it is all by grace in Christ and in his goodness. And listen, if we will always look to who we are in Christ, and recognize that that is an undeserving thing, that it has come by the grace of God, we will approach decisions in life in a non-presumptuous way. We will approach God in a non-presumptuous way. And you know what the opposite of presumption is? In the case of God, it's faith. In the case of God, it's faith. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You can't know what you can't know. 
We don't know what tomorrow holds. We may lose our job tomorrow. You don't know. You may have someone you love die this coming week. Not even someone who is sick and that you are expecting to pass away, maybe. You don't know. You don't know if maybe you will die this week. You don't know if you will begin experiencing health issues this week and then be diagnosed with cancer or some other terminal disease. You you don't know those things. So what do you do? We have to rest and have confidence in God and our relationship with Him. Not that that determines that outcome. It does determine how we walk through hard times. And it does determine how we work through walking faithfully. Whether it is faithfulness in sickness, faithfulness in job loss, faithfulness in losing someone, whatever that is. And then there's the third thing that we've seen, and that is praying and fasting. This fact is true. It just, it just is. Uh, when we aren't sure what to do, what should we do? We should pray. We should pray. Prayer is the source that will always strengthen our faith. This is why when we're facing decisions here in the life of Oak Valley that we call for seasons of prayer and fasting. I hope you take advantage of those for the church's sake, but also for yours, because there's always this element when we're encouraging you to pray and fast, is that we are always turning that back to you to seek the Lord in areas of your life as well, even as you seek the Lord on behalf of Oak Valley and on behalf of this ministry. John Calvin wrote this. He said, whenever men are to pray to God concerning a great matter, it would be expedient to appoint fasting along with prayer. Some of you are familiar with Don Whitley, and he wrote this in response to what Calvin said. He said, there's something about fasting that sharpens the edge of our intercessions and deepens the passion of our supplications. Hopefully you have fasted before and you have experienced that. It just sharpens the edge of your request. In other words, your heart and mind get laser focused to get into the presence of God, into His presence at His feet to pour out your heart and the request that you have, seeking His will, and it deepens the passion for God and deepens the passion for your supplications. God has given us prayer and fasting as a means to make our pleas and appeals to him. Now, now what does that have to do with Ezra? Well, Ezra was seeking to walk by faith, and he didn't know what to do, but he knew what he had stated about God, and now he was going to move forward, giving evidence of that faith. And yet, there was still, on the backside of that, I don't know what I don't know. I don't know what I don't know, so what do I do? I pray and I fast. And then finally, the good hand of God is on us always to bring us to victory. Look at verse 31. Then we departed after they had been there three days. They're getting ready to set out for their four-month journey. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And what do we hear? The hand of our God was on us. And what did he do? He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from the ambushes by the way. So what did they experience? They experienced all the things that he had anticipated, but without military escort, God delivered them through all of that. And then listen at verse 32, and I believe this is probably... Uh, for, for me, is, is, it's just probably the greatest verse. We came to where? Jerusalem. We came to Jerusalem. Why is, why is that statement there? 
You say, well, it's just part of his record. They came, they arrived. Well, yeah, they arrived. After all that they had been through, they arrived. Their return to Jerusalem was part of the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel. It wasn't just about them. It was a part of God's promise and his fulfillment of that promise to Israel. But it's there for us for other reasons. It points to the final fulfillment of his promise to his covenant people. So I was thinking about how to end our time together. I was reminded of the 23rd Psalm. And I want you to hear it because of what it has to say. It is a messianic psalm. This turns into a, a, a baby's lullaby thought. But I want you to hear what the psalmist said. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. The good hand of God on us. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He was pointing to eternity. I will dwell in the house of the Lord. I will dwell in the presence of God forever. The good hand of God on us will lead us to victory and to the end to where we come into the presence of God forever. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14. This was Jesus' words. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. In other words, blessed are those who are washed by the blood of the Lamb. They will be brought to Jerusalem. They will be brought to Jerusalem. Will you pray with me? Father, help us to know you and your glory in Christ. To walk and live with an understanding that your good hand is on us. You have given us your word. Work within us that we would be students of your word for the sake of doing it and for the sake of sharing it. Help us, Lord, to take courage in you. And then help us, O oh Lord, as we look ahead to the victory that comes when we are transported into your presence. Finally, perfectly clean. Robes washed, eating of the tree of life, entering into your presence in Jerusalem. By Christ, in Christ, through Christ, for the glory and sake of you and your name. Amen.